0: What's going on? Welcome back to another episode of Nerd Alert with Dan and Dean. Uh, today, we're talking about the Bhopal disaster, uh, which is sort of, I could almost describe this as kind of a, a case study, I guess, like a historical review, sort of similar to the Plague of Galen episode in terms of it being you know, based on a historical event. But this, this one's definitely a much different tone, I think, than our last episode about spicy foods, which was uh, Comparably a, a little bit more lighthearted. I think that's a an understatement.
1: Oh, yeah This is like this is heavy stuff, man. Like, this is rough.
0: Well, you you brought up this episode as one that a lot of people probably didn't know about and I'm certainly or I was certainly one of them um, and once I started reading about it, it is Appalling I think is, is a good word for it. It's, it's one of the most incredible, uh, again, like stories that most people probably haven't heard of, uh, when you think about, uh, man-made, uh, disasters basically. Right. And, and I mean, that's, uh, and this is basically the worst, uh, of them as yeah, far I, as I, I understand.
1: Yeah. I, I would put this on par with like, um, I, I would bet the vast majority of people have at least heard about Chernobyl. Right. Um, this, Uh, you know, gas tragedy is sort of on par in in terms of the implications and the the, the holistic tragedy of the whole thing. Um, But I think it sort of flies under the radar. Now, when it happened, I mean, this was a massive global affair. Mm -hmm. Um, So do do you want to get into it? Tell us, you know, what happened? And then we can sort of lay out the groundwork for everyone so we can understand... I feel like we we cast this looming shadow over the whole thing and haven't actually explained any of it yet That's
0: true. Maybe we should just start start there. So the uh, the Bhopal uh, disaster or gas tragedy as it's often called was a major uh, chemical accident, I guess is the right word for it, that happened in uh, December of 1984. So a little bit before our time and it occurred at the Union Carbide India Limited pesticide plant which was in uh, Bhopal which is a city in in India and at a, at a very high level and we're gonna we're gonna talk about the lead up to you know what happened here and, and especially the aftermath but uh, over 500,000 people were exposed to this methyl isocyanate gas which is a highly toxic gas uh, that's sort of important in the manufacture of pesticides or at least was, uh, in kind of the pesticide heyday, so to speak, that, that you know the world was in in the 70s and 80s. I, um, I would
1: say largely isn't anymore right. because of this.
0: Yeah, I mean, this, you know, I think when people talk about pesticides in general, you think of, um, what was that book, uh, Silent Spring? I forget who the author was, but that was a pretty uh, groundbreaking book about... Um, CFCs and sort of their their impact on the ozone layer. And while maybe not directly tied to pesticides, I think we've since become more environmentally conscious about the impact of some of these chemicals. But often that's, again, cast in the light of environmental impact, whereas this is also heavily in the kind of human and societal impact, uh, you know, beyond what it's doing to like uh, local wildlife, uh, which which was still certainly affected by something like this. So um, I saw some pretty widely differing estimates for death toll here. I think the original estimate that was sort of right after the event that was released, uh, you know, the, the official statement from the government was something like 2,500 people, which based on the number of people that were exposed seems like a gross underestimation. And I think since then, again, like Chernobyl is an interesting analogy here. I'm glad you brought that one up because there's such a long time horizon on how and when this event, you know, continues to affect families that it's kind of hard to put a specific number to it. At least that was the impression I was under.
1: Yeah. So I, when when I was, uh, and maybe just to sort of round out the whole summary of what we what, oh, yeah. what, we're, what we're talking about, um, this Ucils a uh, Ucil. Um, pesticide factory is in uh, Bhopal right next to a town uh, or a, a, a small city um, conglomerate of, of humans. There was a problem with the factory and a gas cloud got released into the atmosphere and covered the whole town. You can almost, I mean, not to uh, make it humorous, but I almost picture it like a cartoon, like this green noxious gas just kind of floats up and then, you know, goes over everyone's houses and kills a whole lot of people. Um, and it's, it's, it's tragic. So the, the, um, the estimates I think vary widely because of when you attribute these deaths to um, so the number that I found was 2259 people died you know there that day because because of immediate effects of the gas okay um, but if you extrapolate a little bit um, you know you, you go out you know 20 years 25 years uh, in, in 2008 the Indian government actually paid out compensation to family of 3,787 victims that were killed and 574,366 that were injured. So we're talking, you know, somewhere less than 4,000 were killed and over half a million um, were injured because of this. And those are, you know, the the court numbers. Um, So in some sense, those are fairly official.
0: Right. And it's... Because of the consequences of exposure, which we'll we'll talk about a little bit later Yeah, it's really difficult to kind of pin that down and another thing that I think is relevant here When we're talking about this factory and and maybe we can get into a little bit of background on the plant itself As far as I understand this this plant this pesticide manufacturing facility was like the employer in this area, right? so when you think about Again, Chernobyl is a is a really interesting um, analogy here because it was similarly most of the reason that people lived in that area around the nuclear power plant was because they worked at the plant or they were you know a local firefighter who was stationed near the plant or things like that and and that's basically the case with this factory so it's not like this was some chemical that escaped from like a secret research facility I mean it, this was like the the centerpiece of that uh, town or city's sort of local economy and, and, you know, most of the income of most of those families there.
1: Yeah. So, uh, just, just to lay the historical context. Um, so the union carbide India limited, the, the owners of the factory of, of the pesticide plant, um, were a majority owned by the union carbide corporation, which is actually an American company. Um, it's an American chemical corporation. I think it was like just under 50, it was like 49.1% of the shares were actually owned by the Indian government, um, you know, like controlled banks and, you know, the Indian public. So it, this was you know, majority American owned, but, you know, just barely not majority Indian owned. So the UCIL factory was actually built in 1969 to produce a chemical called sieven, um which is carbaryl, which is basically at least back then the chemical that was in insecticides so that's that's the chemical that we're really talking that we're really trying to get to is carbaryl their brand name was Sevin methyl isocyanate as as you said before Dan or MIC um, is an intermediate in the production of uh Sevin mm-hmm. so it's, without getting too into the, the you know organic chemistry of all of this, uh, in order to make something that's going to be deadly to bugs, there's going to be a whole lot of deadly compounds involved in the production. Right. right? It's an
0: additive uh, process.
1: Right. Um, so th- this is actually something that I found a little bit interesting and really does paint the picture of why the whole event gets such a... And, and when we explain it, you, you just almost can't even wrap your head around some of the, the gross negligence and just every single possible um, thing that could go wrong just created this perfect storm of, of catastrophe. So the Union Carbide Corporation was facing a lot of financial losses, you know, starting in the late 1960s. Um, the market had kind of stagnated for insecticides um, that sort of forced um, the UCC parent company to retire a lot of like long-term debts. Their, their credit rating absolutely plummeted, their stock fell, they were just strapped for cash. So they needed money, they needed liquid money. Um, And when a huge international corporation needs money, one of the first things they try and do is cut corners to save. So they actually built this MIC manufacturing plant as an add-on to the uh, UCIL site in 1979. Now initially, um, UCIL was importing MIC. Because it's a dangerous chemical, yeah, there, there's a whole lot of, you know, regulations you're supposed to follow in order to manufacture it. So rather than deal with all of that, when the company was, you know, sitting pretty, they just bought it and imported it. But now that they're losing money, they say, hey, well, if we make it ourselves, then we could probably do it uh, for a little bit cheaper. So. They actually... what is that
0: vertical integration,
1: yeah <laughs> <laughs> something like that i I think that's the term
0: well, and I'll also add that in the yeah toward the end toward the late seventies early eighties, which is kind of getting into the time frame leading up to this event, I think a lot of the reason that pesticide the, the market was down was due to i think global drought, I think there was basically a lot of drought, especially in some of the regions that this uh, use plant specifically would have sold to that, you know, among other things led to uh, also an accumulation uh, of material, both, you know, sort of raw ingredients and sort of finished products at this facility at other facilities. So again, it just sort of builds up that backdrop of what might have led to uh, some, you know, an event like this. Anyway, yeah. Uh, so, just wanted to, to provide that. Yeah,
1: back. no, the, and you're 100 percent right. So the 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 need for a lot of these pesticides was down. Um, there, there was actually a, a lot more competition for cheaper and safer ones. So it, just in general, the Union Carbide was not you know hugely thrilled with this. So they're you know gonna try and save some money. So they petitioned to the um, the state government in India, which actually granted them special permission to manufacture MIC as an add-on to the plant. Um, so that's that actually really shouldn't be overlooked. Um, in this negotiation, I, it was sort of mandated that uh, UCIL come up with these safety precautions for, you know, if, if you're going to manufacture this very lethal chemical, then you have to have safety plans for your employees, safety plans right. for the towns, XYZ. Yeah, And UCIL so. said, absolutely, sounds great. Can we start making it now? And we're never gonna make those safety plans. And they never did, um, which, you kind of look at it and you're like, well, in today's day and age, there's there's no way people get away with that. But this isn't today's day and age, so or it wasn't. Um, yeah. So maybe it got overlooked. I, I, I don't know. Well, and I don't think that they...
0: My impression was that they didn't flat out say, oh, yeah, sure, and then not do any of the things that they said. But when you look at what I would call like the degradation of these procedures and these safety plans and training and everything over time, it sort of had this just snowballing effect in terms of, like you said, the perfect storm. And another thing that I read, which maybe you can clarify is, and talking about, you know, cost saving, apparently you didn't actually even need to use methyl isocyanate to manufacture this particular type of pesticide. But doing so actually made it quite a bit cheaper. So beyond the decision to integrate the manufacturer of that intermediate, even just the decision to use it was like, well, this is a little more unsafe, but it's a lot cheaper in terms of the volume that they were trying to produce. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. So I, my you know, very naive understanding of this is if you want your end product to be Carborol, which is what basically everyone wanted, MIC is a cheap and easy in terms of um actual steps but not necessarily in terms of equipment or, or knowledge um but it's an easier way to yield carb but some of uh you know uh, union carbide corps uh competitors figured out relatively cost-effective ways to make alternative methods of yielding carb safe and cheap and comp- so, again yeah. this is one of those reasons that um you know that they were they were so uh not not financially stable
0: right uh and while we're still talking about carbaryl, i don't think we actually really mentioned what it is we said it's an insecticide um it's usually a white uh crystalline solid and from what i could tell it, it was just the pesticide right very indiscriminate um Basically, what it does is it messes with uh, you know certain parts of cellular processes in uh, basically every living thing. It's meant for insects. It's particularly effective in insects, but it's definitely toxic to humans. Uh, and it is considered a likely carcinogen by the EPA. So, uh, yeah, just if it wasn't clear already from all the uh, vivid words that have been used so far, it's just pretty nasty stuff. And you definitely you know, don't want a bunch of it just sitting around.
1: Right. And to, to throw out one word that, you know, some, some people might recognize, the the, the process by which uh, MIC is created, so that, again, that intermediate before you actually get carbaryl is to take methylamine and react it with phosgene. Phosgene is basically the chemical weapon that was used in World War I. Um, so th- th- this is not, you know, some random you know, molecule that no one's ever heard of. This is a chemical right. warfare agent that is being specifically combined with another very lethal gas in order to create something, um, that, that can kill bugs. So when, when, people hear Phosgene, they're like, Oh, that, that, that I I'm sort of know what that is.
0: Yeah. It's pretty nasty stuff. So right. It's not like you're taking a bunch of otherwise, uh, Unassuming ingredients and somehow producing something very lethal. You're, you're taking a bunch of very lethal stuff and making something even more, uh, you know, lethal. So
1: right. Um, and then just to round out the picture of of the financial stability of um, the Union Carbide Court, some of the other cost saving corners that they were cutting um, was they actually reduced their overall workforce, including um, the the uh, the India site. Um, they employed a lot of new young workers that were often underqualified for the the requirements of the job. Um, They were generally uh, just flat out ignoring safety precautions. Um, So uh, specifically when it came to pipe repairs, there were actually some documents uh, that that were uncovered later uh, of um, exchanges within the company that were recommending using specifically for the cost saving aspect, using unsafe methods, in order to save money, like there were no, you know, mincing words here. It was explicitly stated. I actually wish I had the quote um, that, you know, an employee asked, "Hey, we should be using this stuff, right?" And corporate said, "Actually, that's too expensive. We're going to use this, even though it doesn't work as well, but it's cheap."
0: Yeah, it wasn't exactly like they were concealing uh, their desire to sidestep uh, what had been expected of them, uh, which I think makes the whole thing all the more. You know, insane,
1: basically, right. So, and I, again, you you hear about the event, and you're like, "Wow, that that's that's terrible." But when you hear about what led up to it, you're like, "Man, it's it's just it's negligent. It's criminal negligence, literally. Actually, criminal negligence."
0: Right. And maybe this would be a good time to talk about the the physical layout of the plant and just sort sort of paint a picture here, because then I think that will lend itself nicely to uh, some of that lead up before this this actual catastrophic event that that we're referring to
1: sure so if, if you picture you know a a factory right like sheet metal walls you know sheet metal you know angled roof it's got some smokestacks it's got some, it looks like a regular factory but the important parts of this are that there were three underground tanks uh, these like 18,000 gallon tanks that stored liquid um, MIC. So these storage tanks were named and were numbered. I don't really know. Uh, they, they were called E610. I guess that's a number, even though there's, ah, we're just going to call Identifier. them. Identifier. Identifiers, fine. Labels, identifiers, call them whatever you want. E610, E611 and E619. I don't know what happened at, you know 12 through 18, but
0: yeah, right away. I was like, something's fishy here.
1: <laughs> um, and so you had these big tanks underground. And there are pipes that lead to and out of those tanks. Um, One of the very important pipes pumps uh, gaseous nitrogen um, into the tank in order to pressurize it. This is relatively straightforward. Um, When the pressure is too low, you pump in more nitrogen. When the pressure is too high, you take some nitrogen out. So that sort of stabilizes the pressure within the tank. Now this is actually really important because since MIC reacts with water, even like very small amounts of water that would just kind of be in ambient air. The idea is to not have any of that ambient air inside of the tanks. So you have MIC, and anything that's not MIC should be nitrogen. Um, And this inert nitrogen gas does not react with MIC. And then there's another pipe that leads out of the tank, and this is basically to remove impurities. Chemicals do not stay stable forever, um, so one of these pipes basically siphons off Um, Some of these chemical impurities and these pipes lead to these vented grass, uh, sorry, grass, these vented gas scrubber systems, which I think of it almost like a charcoal filter on crack. Um, That's kind of what I was picturing. Yeah. Um, And then after it passes through that scrubber system, it can actually uh, get converted into non-toxic gases, which actually can be released into the atmosphere. Um, And then there's another, think of it almost as like an emergency overflow pipe um, that leads to a flare tower. A flare tower. I don't know if you've ever noticed this Dan but when we're driving home like past Newark all oh, the industrial yeah. area there's some of those like really, you know, factory looking towers that have literal fire on top of yeah, them.
0: Yeah, they're they're burning off That's what I exactly assume is like it's... excess vapor or right. something like yeah. that. Yeah, excess. Yeah, yeah. exactly.
1: Um so MIC is flammable, so the idea is that if there's too much MIC, then just shove th- some of it through this pipe and let it go up and literally get incinerated um, by the flare tower. These pipes are obviously very crucial to the overall safety and stability of the entire system, so they are cleaned daily. That's going to play a, a pretty important role. Um, the other aspect of this that, again, you read it, you're like, and I, I'm gonna say this so many times because. I slapped myself in the face to make sure I wasn't like misreading this. I slapped I, you in the it, face. I,
0: <laughs> no, but I actually, uh, when we when we were separately kind of researching this and taking notes, I think I texted you about halfway through and just said this is unbelievable. Yeah. Because I again wasn't familiar with this, but go ahead, go ahead. No.
1: Um. So the the Union Carbide Corporation, so the, the the parent company, had issued safety regulations that said that the these three tanks should never be more than fifty percent full of MIC. So with those three tanks, only two of them should ever actually be full. The third one should only be there for emergencies. So E10 and E11 are supposed to be 50% full max, and E19 is there for emergencies. That is what the safety regulations very simply lay out. It can't possibly be misconstrued And then the last aspect of all of this, um, or an important part of the layout, is that there are two alarms. Um, And when they were first installed, they were sort of linked together. So there's one alarm that's for the factory. Um, In in case of an emergency or evacuation, whatever um, the event is, in case you need to tell everyone, holy crap, something's going wrong, there's an alarm installed. That alarm was initially linked to another bigger louder alarm that was actually in the town not in the factory right so in case something went wrong with the factory the town would also know get the heck out of there but as well i guess i could go through some of these now if you want me to you 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 want to take them sure i'll take a couple of these
0: so to, to continue with the train of thought you just had at some point it was decided that the alarm goes off so darn often in this factory that it's really disruptive to, you know, all the, all the citizens in this town for no reason. So why don't we just decouple those alarms? And that way, if there's a problem at the factory, we don't, you know, we don't have to wake people up, uh, which on the surface, you know, for anyone who's been woken up by, you know, I don't know, a a false alarm or something like that. uh, Yeah. You can kind of understand that. But I think when you see, uh, some of the things leading up to it, you'll be, you'll be very concerned. So there were uh, a few leaks or safety incidents to to uh undersell it uh that had occurred at this plant prior to or sort of leading up to this disaster so i think one of the first ones was in uh 1976 where uh, a bunch of local uh, trade unions who who you know represented employees at this plant complained that there was pollution within the plant which sounds like a problem a few years later in 1981 A worker was actually splashed with uh, phosgene, which is that you said it's literally a chemical weapon that was used in in World War One. He panicked and removed his mask and inhaled the toxic phosgene gas, which then killed him 72 hours later. Uh, There was also a journalist uh, whose name was uh, Rajkumar Kaswani. He began warning the public. This is back again. This is a few years before uh, the 1984 disaster. He began warning the public, uh, stating, quote, "'Wake up, people of Bhopal. You are on the edge of a volcano.'" I mean, that's pretty concerning. If I was to, to read that in the, the Sunday newspaper, I would be
1: extremely concerned. So do, do you know why this journalist was so invested? I don't, actually. Do you have the background? So uh, the, the the engineer, uh, or the, the factory worker that accidentally inhaled that phosgene gas, his name was uh, Muhammad Ashraf, uh, Ashraf sorry. Um, and that he inhaled that on christmas eve 1981 oh wow his best friend was raj kumar kaswani the journalist
0: oh so wow so before
1: his death he had actually been you know sort of uh, filling in or complaining to his friend about the unsafe conditions of the factory
0: just in general before he right. had even been exposed exactly. or had oh yes. wow
1: um so after the event so I, I, you know if if i'm raj kumar um you know my best friend dies you know it's December 24th, it's it's sad and it's really going to stick with me, especially when he's been telling me for months that the factory that he works in is horribly unsafe. That's so awful. So now I'm going to make it you know, basically my life's goal to take a look at this. And he did. He investigated for, I think it took him about nine months to sort of publish that, that first piece. Okay. Um, and he, he ended up publishing it in the local paper uh, called the Repat. Um, and the title of that first publication more or less translates to save, please save the city. And it was ignored by everyone, by by the company, by the local government, by his friends. Um, And then about a week later on October 1st, 1982, he published exactly what you said, that uh, Bhopal was sitting on the brink of a volcano. And then four days after that, 18 people were exposed to chloroform, which is another sort of intermediate that's used, uh, MIC and hydrochloric acid. They were actually all treated, um, but still so close to a publication specifically saying, hey, something bad's going to happen. Yeah. A couple days later, something bad happens. Oh, no. And then three days after that, he published another article called, If You Don't Understand, You Shall All Be Wiped Out.
0: Wow. So, I mean, he was really not mincing words.
1: He was. And I mean, not to, foot too, or not, not to put too fine a point on it, but he was 100% right.
0: Oh, Absolutely. And it wasn't just those 18 workers there was another leak i saw that exposed uh 24 workers to that uh phosgene january 1982 yep uh there was an engineer who was exposed to mic he burned 30 percent of his body and uh yeah later that year there was another leak and then in the next two years there were several leaks of uh mic chlorine phosgene various toxic chemicals that were at this plant it seemed like if they had a chemical on site it leaked at one point or another and not only leaked but exposed people who worked there and and affected their
1: health. So all of these regular leaks, right? And I mean, this is over the course of what would you just go through? Like December 1981 to basically the end of 1982. There were multiple instances of many people being exposed or dying or being hospitalized, like not just minor exposure events. And the Union Carbide Core, uh, like, uh, parent company, they took zero action. That They did not step in. They did not say, hey, this is unsafe. They did not even, you know, recommend that everyone be wearing, you know, personal protective equipment. They just let it go.
0: Yeah, it's really incredible. And, I, I mean, at that time, well, so it sounds like even locally people were not, Uh, and and this is not necessarily to fault you know your average citizen who lived there but it didn't sound like this was getting much traction locally so i'm sure there was almost no global awareness at this point right leading up to the disaster they're just because i think if there were i could imagine some kind of pressure being put on the company uh, you know even from like a shareholder perspective or something had it been more public but it seems like it was just really swept under the rug and and there was no reason for anyone to uh, follow up on it, basically, because no one really knew.
1: Right. And and then we start getting into, so that that was, you know, the late uh, 1970s, early 1980s. Let's pick up January 1982. And this is where things start to just pile on and, uh, you know, eventually you'll, you'll get to the catastrophe. But so January 1982, the, because of all of these leaks and all of these... Um, you know, like fundamental engineering issues, uh, the refrigeration system was actually shut down for maintenance. Um, and then later in 1982, as you said before, the factory sort of decoupled its alarm from the town and it never linked them back up. Then we're going to skip ahead a, a little bit more to 1984. So now we're in the year, the summer, June, 1984. The Freon was removed from that now uh, disconnected refrigeration system. In that process, those temperature alarms, which were supposed to start ringing when the the temperature of these tanks hit 52 degrees Fahrenheit, that alarm was disconnected. So June to October 1984. In October 1984, tank E610 was sitting at 70% full. When the company explicitly said it should never be more than 50% full. So while it is sitting at 70% full, it lost the ability to contain its its inert nitrogen gas pressure, um, which meant that MIC could no longer be pumped out. This is obviously a huge problem, so MIC production was stopped for, for maintenance of, uh, of, of this particular tank. At the same time, they said, okay, if we're shutting that down, let's let's do a real maintenance. Let's do a whole lot of stuff all at once. So they shut down the flare tower, they started servicing some of those vent gas scrubbers. And by servicing, I mean shut them off and never really revisited them. And then they started servicing the steam boiler, which is supposed to sort of automatically clean the pipes, but it was having problems. It never got totally fixed. So uh, again, because these pipes are so important and because I said before, every day these pipes get cleaned. Um, When the thing that cleans them isn't working, there's a problem. Um, So November, 1984, Uh, Carborol production resumed using the stored MIC in E611 and E619. So I say to you, in E619, that makes no sense because there shouldn't be any there because it specifically said that's just for overflow. Well, as another cost-saving mechanism, um, the company decided that all of the excess from the past years will just keep in E19 so that if we ever needed it, we'll have it. Even though it's supposed to be use, sitting at 0.
0: Yeah, cuz you know, E610, who knows if we're ever getting that stuff out again. Right.
1: So, w- what are some of the red flags? Right? We 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 know that, you know, the the safety precautions that were or the the safety plans that were required to be submitted were not the most robust. And I, I actually saw that some of them were missing signatures. So they were never officially implemented, right. even if they were you know, there on paper.
0: They had undertrained uh, new staff, right? You said they hired a lot of yep. you know, younger people, not as much experience maybe working in a factory like that. Insufficient training for those people on
1: uh, basically illegitimate protocols. Um, the pressure gauges on the two active tanks, E19 and um, E11, or E611, E6, I think I keep forgetting the six, Um, but anyway, 619 and 611, the pressure gauges weren't working. So that can't possibly be good news. Um, The MIC level indicators were not working on E610. The alarm when the tank temperature gets too high was turned off. The scrubbers were switched off. The flare tower was not working. Well, at least
0: we can notify the town if something goes wrong. You'd think so. actually, sorry. And that's the other thing that blew my mind is this isn't, um, oh, the alarm system that was supposed to connect the two alarms, you know, malfunctioned or wasn't maintained properly. It was very deliberately decoupled. Yes. So it's incredible.
1: Yeah. Mind boggling. Um, the, the pressure control for tank E ten or E six ten, which is you'll see the problematic one, um, was not working. It's supposed to sit around like one and a half psi, um, but it was kind of just floating around two, which people sort of just looked at and said, "eh, it's close enough, whatever." But right. okay, maybe I can forgive that one. But the town alarm being turned off, I did, I'm sorry. There's there's no recovering from that one for me. I don't know if that's the icing on the cake, but all of it combined is just it's it's heartbreaking, especially knowing you have yeah to, as listeners you have to know where this is going
0: well yeah I agree I think the the alarm one was the one that actually you know made me just smack my hand against my forehead because uh not that you can forgive what is as you said literally criminal uh negligence in terms of how the plant was being run, but at least. There would be some comfort in knowing that if and when something did go wrong, you'd have, you'd think you'd have an informed public, or at least informed public officials who could take necessary action to get people uh, to safety. And right away, just the fact that that's not even an option makes the whole thing a powder keg, basically.
1: So now we reach December third, or I guess December second. Yeah, was, 2nd, yeah right. the evening so the into,
0: into the third. Yeah.
1: So you you want to go. Hour by hour you want i, I, I could take a, a crack at this if you want
0: yeah well let me uh let, let me start off with my understanding and maybe you can you can fill in the gaps here so i mentioned that or well dean summarized very nicely that or Dean, you summarized very nicely. Oh, thank you. I, I keep talking that. about you in the third person. I forget we're talking to each other. Uh, you summarized very nicely that uh, they had basically no idea what the pressure was uh, inside the tank, or at least they couldn't accurately maintain it without the nitrogen. And this is E610. Uh, we know it was about, what would you say, like 70% full, which we know is too much. Uh, and they were trying to unclog these pipes late at night, which also seems like a great time to do this. And uh, they were doing it with water. So they were trying to pump some water in there thinking, you know, maybe they can, I don't know, figure out a way to unclog it and start getting some of that MIC out of the tank. Well, in doing so, uh, the pressure in the tank spiked to about five times that already elevated uh, pressure. So I think it jumped to about 10 PSI within the first 30 or so minutes. Uh, Within about an hour the workers in the area were already feeling some exposure effects of MIC, which is not good. I think at the time, I don't think they fully appreciated that something was going on, but I think some acute effects were already being felt. So when they eventually found uh, the leak, and so this is E610, they found a leak at about 11.45 p.m. They did uh, an extremely logical thing. They decided to take a tea break, and revisit in about an hour or so. So, in a plant where there were safety issues by by how it sounds, almost weekly, they know that they find a leak of this toxic uh, precursor, and they basically decide we should go, you know, have a cup of, of tea and think about it for an hour. What were they thinking? I I don't understand. Um, so. Maybe you should continue from here. I'm already getting fired up.
1: Yeah, it, it, it's genuinely mind And it sounds so stupid, but... I, like, I, if this I, happened
0: in a TV show, you'd be like, oh, that's ridiculous. There's no way they would do that. Uh, but they did. Um, so... For some reason.
1: So, where, where'd you go? 1145, they found the leak, they reported to the supervisor, and th- this was actually a detail that I had overlooked the first time. Um, it was not necessarily that all of the workers decided, hey, let's go get tea. The supervisor decided and actually ends up being held liable for this years later made the decision we will look for more leaks and address this one after our hour-long tea break
0: yeah and and maybe to draw another parallel with uh, Chernobyl and I think that's an important background or characterization of both of these situations is there's ultimately a hierarchy of you know, managers and supervisors and, and department heads and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, these people like really cracked the whip in terms of, I'm the boss. This is what I say is going to go. And in both Chernobyl and surely in this situation, people were concerned. People recognized, you know, some, your average employee may have said, something's not right here. I think we should, you know, play this safe. We should maybe just, we, we should stop what we're doing. We should stop the test. We should stop the cleaning, whatever they're doing. Uh, But all it takes is someone who has the authority to say, that's not happening, I'm not allowing that, you know, continue doing your job, or like, you're fired. And the risk of, you know, losing your job in that moment, I mean, this has happened throughout history in a number of different, you know, non-deadly situations, but people just sort of say, you know, it's fall in line or basically get lost. So yeah, that's a really good point that it's not like every employee was blissfully unaware that something was happening
1: and so I'll, I'll, I'll actually if we go back in the timeline i'll make that point again you said that the employees were trying to clean out the pipes with water right That's exactly what it was typically what happens is that there's a return on the pipe so you, you know you push water through and it comes back out and you get to see it come back out right so you know that it's actually cleaning the pipes but what was happening was that they were pushing water through and the water was not coming back out so there's only one place for that water to be going yeah. and that's into the tank of MIC where it's going to exothermically react and build up pressure, build up temperature, start, you know, uh, causing problems. So the employees that were cleaning these pipes assumed there was a clog, went to their supervisor to tell them, okay. "Hey, the water is not coming back out the other side, what should we do?" That supervisor and another supervisor both said, "Keep leaving the water on." And the people that come at the next shift change will shut it off. So those two supervisors also implicated in this. So where'd you leave me? Uh, Tea break, right? So now it's, I don't know, Uh, 12,
0: 1245 or so, right? 1250 maybe is is kind of where we're getting to.
1: I have 1240. Tea break ends.
0: Yeah, okay. I I said about 1245,
1: (laughs) but yeah. Um, Yeah, so at, at 1240, you know, the, the reaction had, inside of uh, 610, E610, had reached a fairly critical state. The temperature was upwards of 77 degrees Fahrenheit, but there's no alarm because that wasn't working. The pressure was over 40 PSI. That wasn't working. Again, it's supposed to be like 1.5 PSI, um, but the pressure gauge isn't working. Um, there was an employee that actually noticed that the, the, these tanks were buried underground um, under these concrete slabs. Employees noticed that the concrete slabs were actually starting to crack um, so that now, now you can actually see that there is a problem, um, n- not that seeing these gas leaks was not an indicator, um, but seeing the concrete start to, to, to break is, you know, a pretty big deal. And the pressure
0: continued uh, going up, right, up to even 55 psi, you know, pretty shortly thereafter while this concrete is cracking. That was despite the fact that at this point you have atmospheric venting. The whole point of these tanks and putting them underground and the way that the the nitrogen pressure, you know, regulates uh, the tank's internal pressure is you're not exposing this liquid MIC to the air, which, as you said earlier, the moisture in the air can cause a reaction and it can essentially, you know, aerosolize. And the interesting thing here is that there were at least three different safety systems that had to fail or be, you know, inactive to allow that atmospheric venting to happen. So there's just another one that we, we missed the first time around in terms of, oh, this thing was also not working.
1: It's hard to keep track of them all. It really is. So that's what, 12, 1240, right? All, all, you know, it's, it, it's a problem. At 1250, there was an employee that actually sounded the factory alarm. And per the UCC's protocols, the town alarm was turned off, right? So that is company procedure. That is not... A, a blunder. Well, Sorry, that's not the right word. It's definitely a blunder. That was not an error made by the employee. He was doing exactly what he was supposed to do. It was just unfortunately not the right thing to do. So that's 1250. Um, so 30 tons of MIC gas has escaped within an hour um, and up up to 40 tons escapes this one tank um, over the course of two hours. And all of that You know, as it gets aerosolized, gets blown southeast over the town, and there was this was also a little bit hard to read, um, but I guess in summary, there was a a severe lack of information exchange between UCIL, the factory, and the authorities of the town. So somewhere between one thirty and two o'clock in the morning, UCIL was uh, sort of conveying the idea that everything's fine, like, don't worry about it. And then at two o'clock in the morning, that message changed. So again, big, big problem. T-break ends at 1240. The tanks are you know, sort of just massively releasing this gas at call one o'clock in the morning. Between 1.30 and two, they're saying everything's okay. And at two o'clock, they changed their message to, we have no idea what happened.
0: Well, and and I don't think they even notified the police uh, directly or the the local authorities. Mm -hmm. I saw that it was a a town inspector from a nearby town who said, I think there's something going on. They told the police. The police start basically calling uh, UCIL. I think they called them, like you said, a few times. And they basically were just assured everything's fine. And then, yeah, it turns to actually we, we don't know what's happening. Not even that something is wrong, but we don't know.
1: Right. So, and the, the, the factory is not communicating with the hospital at all. Um, so, it's Hamidia, I think is how you pronounce it. Yeah. Hamidia Hospital. So, the, the authorities had sort of alerted the hospital that something's happening. We don't really know what. We think it's probably ammonia or phosgene. Um, so, the hospital, being familiar with these two chemicals, gives oxygen to the patients. But oxygen reacts really poorly with MIC. So, not actually the right thing to do. And at some point, the hospital was told, and I quote, It's MIC. That is an acronym that most physicians probably are not familiar with. Um, So, it wasn't actually helpful information. Um, They they did not know the chemical compound. They didn't actually probably even know it was a chemical at that point. So, the hospital was woefully unequipped to be um, dealing with the lack of information that they were receiving. Well, and Um,
0: even if they did know what that acronym stood for, right, there was basically no protocol in place for how to manage it, which was incredible because the factory produced it because it was, you know, a a major uh, risk to not only the workers at the factory, but the people in the town. So I
1: I go back to that safety plan of the hospital was never actually informed of... You know, These the safety precautions, or in the event of an emergency, what is the emergency plan? Is there an evacuation plan? Is there a treatment plan? Exactly. The hospital was never, you know, formally looped into that. Which, how do you not?
0: Seems like that would be a, one of the first stops you'd make in a worst case scenario, you know, disaster plan, because that's right. basically what it is. And, you know, I think the thing that I, I thought this was kind of a, a sad statement, which was that almost everyone who was actually exposed here found out about the leak because of their exposure, because they were physically affected by their exposure to that gas. There was almost literally no warning for anyone. And what little warning did sort of make it out into the world, you know, in the form of the police, the hospital, uh, they didn't know what to do with the information at all. There was no way and there was no actionable plan they could put into effect to actually do anything. And it's the middle of the night, everyone's asleep.
1: Uh, just terrible. So by 2 o'clock in the morning, the town alarm finally goes off. Um, but by 2 o'clock, 30 tons of this stuff had been you know, sort of amassing in a cloud and rolling over the town. So this gas cloud, which is, is primarily MIC, but also contains you know, some amounts of chloroform, hydrogen chloride, methyl amine, a whole lot of other very caustic, very toxic chemicals, um, this cloud is rolling over the town, and this cloud is denser than air. So it doesn't float up into the atmosphere. it sinks down basically to ground level. So I mean, there, there were thousands and thousands of dead animals all over the place. and unfortunately, the people that were most affected were the ones that were shorter, were the children, because yeah. they literally didn't have the height to get you know further away from the the, the cloud of chemicals. As more long-term effects, uh, the stillbirth rate was up three hundred percent. The neonatal mortality rate up over two hundred percent. Of the survivors, uh, I guess if the people were lucky enough to survive, you know, massively affected with different types of cancer, with blindness, uh, just right. general loss of livelihood, just horrible financial burden um, b- b- because of the the tragedy that that befell the town.
0: Yeah, and and in the sort of immediate uh, and of course the density or concentration of this gas in different regions of the town likely varied, you know, it might've mattered the type of home someone was living in or, or yeah, which way their, their home was facing. Uh, but for those who were exposed, it caused symptoms such as coughing, uh, severe eye irritation, uh, feelings of suffocation, burning respiration. Uh, but yeah, thousands had died. Uh, as you said, basically, whether, you know, animals, people, uh, basically most living things by the following day due to choking, circulatory collapse, pulmonary edema, and autopsies that were performed on some of the victims actually showed uh, tubular necrosis of the kidneys, fatty degeneration of the liver, and necrotizing enteritis, which is basically a necrosis of the um, intestinal tissue. So Beyond those immediate respiratory and, you know, ocular effects that these people felt, I mean, it basically just destroyed their internal organs is kind of how I understood it.
1: Yeah. So uh, one of the interesting sort of accounts that I was reading was uh, a man who sort of was really emphasizing the fact that people didn't know what to do. This town alarm hadn't gone off in years. Mm -hmm. So you hear it and what do you do? You run outside and you try and figure out what's going on. Some people oh, try and get right. into their cars. But the only thing that people, like the actual written um, procedure was for people to either get upwind if you can or lock yourself in place and block all of the vents. And I, I, I say that you know this, this cloud of chemicals kind of came over. At this point, it was a visible cloud. It was like a whitish, yellowish cloud that you could see. So when you see this toxic air seeping in under your door. What right, are you supposed to do? It's going to, I mean, it would freak me out. If I was told your best chance of surviving is, you know, you put a towel under the door and you stay in place, then okay, I i would know that. But these people weren't told anything. Yeah. They did not know how to handle this situation. So it was absolute chaos.
0: Yeah. No, it was terrible. You're right, and we already talked about how the <clears throat> the hospital was extremely ill prepared for you know what was going on. Um, the healthcare system basically became overloaded. You know, literally overnight, I think upwards of seventy percent of the staff were underqualified to deal with you know the patients that were coming in. And again, we said there were thousands of casualties. Uh, there was really no proper treatment that was made available to these hospitals that they could even give um, if they were appropriately staffed and trained to to manage that disaster response. And so again, that's, that's the important thing here. I think when we first started talking about a worst case scenario safety plan, at least I tend to think of that in the context of the factory and what those workers are going to do when they identify a leak or when they figure something's wrong. But there's so many different uh, pieces that have to start kind of falling into place there at the healthcare level, at the, you know, local, you know, police and sort of, uh, and even citizen level. Like, what what are you supposed to do, like you were just saying? So, and basically none of those things happened because they sort of didn't exist.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's again, hard to wrap your head around. It's, it's horribly, horribly sad. But what was the fallout of this? So I guess the the immediate aftermath right. was was that the uh, Union Carbide Corp sent um, sort of their you know, technical team out to convert the remaining MIC into you know less dangerous gases. Um, I've am I read this and I was like I'm picturing them like a whole bunch of Ghostbusters with vacuums Basically, that are just yeah. sucking up the air. I have no idea how that actually works, but this whole effort was called Operation Faith, um, which, at least from a marketing perspective, is exactly what UCC knew they needed to do. They knew that something like, that, this is really bad publicity. We need to figure out something. Yeah. So Operation Faith. Hopefully this works is what it sounds like to Exactly, me, you know? but the ensuing legal action and laws that came out of this really highlight how, you know, this is not just a one and done. I mean, this was 1984. There are still open cases.
0: Yeah. And I mean, there, there was the aftermath in terms of the legal proceeding, which I think we should we should get into. And then, of course, there's aftermath in terms of What do all of these people do, you know, almost immediately? There were basically mass funerals and cremations. Um, It was completely chaotic. Trees, animals, food supply, all basically had to be destroyed or were avoided out of fear for long-term effects. I mean, again, at this point, no one has any idea what just happened, but they just know that, you know, all of their neighbors and people that they knew were effectively ravaged by, like you said, this visible... Uh, cloud of some kind of toxic chemical, while the company is trying to clean it up, but is it much of a stretch to assume that they were doing so out of their own self-interest at this point? Right. It was probably about stopping the bleeding more than it was about. Um, we need to actually go in and and fix what's wrong here and and do right by these people that we unnecessarily exposed. Um, which which I just thought again, you think you couldn't continue to be surprised or caught off guard by this, but I, I just thought that was crazy. Yeah, so it, should we should we get into the some of the investigation and kind of how uh, how some of this ended up playing out in the in the immediate aftermath?
1: Uh, yeah, go for it.
0: Oh, I was hoping you would talk.
1: About oh, it. <laughs> oh, well, I, so actually, uh, there, there were two things before we get into yeah, that um, that actually happened a little bit later, but I, I maybe they're more impactful. That's not the right word, but. They're they're interesting and they, they really stood out when I was when I was taking a look at this. The first was that pretty soon after this event, um, an, an act was passed by the, the local Indian Parliament that basically empowered the government of India to specifically represent the people of this disaster in the courts, because uh, the, I guess the the um, livelihood of most of the individuals was kind of just in shambles. Um, so the Indian government took it upon themselves to say, we know we'll deal with this for you. Yeah. So that they, they passed this act in uh, 1985 in order to, to give them the authority to do that. Uh, keeping with the laws, the governments sort of realized that they didn't exactly have the explicit correct laws to hold people accountable in the case of accidents like this. Mm -hmm. So that's the reason that uh, the first law to be brought in after this accident was the Environmental Protection Act. Um, This act really sort of ensures that industries have to take steps to protect the environment. And the environment includes people that live nearby. Um, and actually, it's a little bit more extreme today. It's even people that don't live nearby. It's just people in general. But that's uh, oh, I didn't a, know that. a, a modern way to think about it. In that same year, a new clause was inserted into the Factories Act, which uh, essentially outlines exactly who the occupier of the factory is and that the occupier, whether it's a company or a person, is responsible for the safety and operation of the factory which seems pretty logical, um, but that actually wasn't stated clearly uh, anywhere before then. Um, And then over over the next couple years, more laws like this to kind of fill in those gaps and make things a little bit more um, cut and dry were introduced. And this was largely to support the victims of industrial disasters, specifically this one, but this is obviously not the only one that's affected people. Um, And then there are laws on the amount of hazardous materials that can actually be stored in a factory, um, you know, caps on importing and exporting and, and actual storage, whether it's in tanks, in liquid form, gaseous form. There are all sorts of very, very, very specific regulations on very specific chemicals. And this is not just for the pesticide world. This is for the chemical world in general. So th- this event really sparked um, a, a revision of Global laws on how to address potential industrial disasters and to help stop them from happening
0: Yeah, and it's I mean it's an unfortunate truth of essentially all safety regulation is that it's usually born out of tragedy or gross negligence, and that's true whether you look at uh, you know fire codes for buildings, um, when you look at um, airplane safety laws. Uh, and yeah when you look at these organizations that are formed for these very um, important purposes uh, they are almost always created in the wake of of a situation that we are just ill-equipped to deal with from a legal perspective so it is unfortunate I think it's 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 certainly positive that this organization exists but it's extremely uh, yeah unfortunate and saddening that it it took something like this for it, for it to kind of come into being
1: that journalist we had mentioned before that uh, Rajkumar Kaswani um yeah. he had actually gone on to win um, a, a whole lot of journalist and literature publication awards oh, in really? India and in in many of his acceptance speeches he sort of has the same refrain of you know the thing that you know grants me all of these accolades I wish no one knew who I was because I wish I was just the crazy one that was spewing nonsense. Right.
0: But, you know, he, he was correct, but uh, I'm sure he'd trade anything to have been wrong. Or, right. Yeah, exactly. Should we uh, talk a little bit about the notorious Warren Anderson?
1: Warren Anderson. <sighs> Sent yeah. shivers down my spine.
0: So um, uh, to at least start this off, so we mentioned that... Um, The UCIL sort of subsidiary uh, was part of uh, UCC, which is the Union Union Carbide Carbide Corporation, Corporation, right? Which is an American-based company. And Warren Anderson was a UCC chairman and CEO. So in the wake, and I think it was pretty soon after this happened. um, I don't know if it was days, but...
1: I think it was the next day.
0: Was it that soon? Okay. So he uh, actually went to India. And as I understand, when he got there, he was pretty much immediately placed on house arrest and was urged to leave. Uh, basically, like, I don't think it's a good idea that you're here right now. And I don't know who, that, who would have done that. I assume it was the Indian government or some law enforcement body. Um, and so then I think he, he did leave, right? He, he did basically get back on his plane um, and get out of there. And you mentioned before the, um, the act Uh, the Bhopal Gas Leak Act that was passed in March 1985 by the Indian government, I also read that uh, some of the first, if not the first, lawsuits uh, for this case were actually um, from the U.S. federal courts, and they suggested that it was sort of fundamental human decency that mandated that there were some union carbide reparations that were paid to, you know, to the Indian government, for the Indian people, for to use as they as they saw fit. So, at first, this sounds like, well, good. They should have said so, right? Uh, and then you see that the reparations that they recommended were on the order of five to ten million dollars, which is insulting. I like now. To be fair, at that point, I'm not sure how well understood the scope of the problem was. You know, I think today we've got a much clearer, you know, hour by hour accounting of what went wrong. And at the time, maybe they didn't have all that information, but it's incredible that they would have uh, just tried to put a number to it and basically write a check and say, you guys got to take care of this. Um, I I just thought that was kind of disappointing.
1: Yeah. And that's exactly what sort of incited the the, the contrary public opinion in India of specifically Warren Anderson uh, be, being the you know CEO of the company that took responsibility for this um, or rather the day after he took responsibility for it um, yeah but obviously the the court proceedings did not make that particularly cut and dry
0: well and and when this proposal of you know, $5 to 10 million dollars should cover it was made the indian government flat out said yeah no we're not taking that and so so began uh this this legal battle basically you know not just between uh organizations representing uh, both the us and indian governments but between you know what we know is the representation of the indian people affected by this and uh ucc right and warren anderson specifically
1: right So by by the end of that, and I don't think we have to talk about all the specifics of the case, um, by the time that case sort of wrapped itself up in 1989, um, Union Carbide ended up paying a total compensation of $470 million to the Indian government, right? Which is, I don't I'm going to make up some quick math here. Let's call that a billion dollars in today's dollars. I don't know. Sure. But it's a lot of money. It's orders of magnitude more than what the initial proposal was. Even still, Indian people were not happy with this. They they did not think that was enough. You cannot just buy your way out of this.
0: Right. And uh, he was, you know, basically treated, uh, well, he was charged with manslaughter and he was deemed a fugitive by the Indian government. You know, he was someone who, if he set foot on Indian soil, he would have been immediately arrested uh, and and charged with manslaughter. And he did uh, eventually die on September 29th uh 2014 he was 92 years old without having served any prison time
1: right and I, it's not that you know he he was wanted you know the indian government was actively trying to have the us extradite him. yeah they the, were the, like this I was not a hey right. we don't like him we were actively or th- they were actively pursuing him
0: right no that's that's a good uh, clarification and you know we we've listed a whole bunch of things that were clear contributors to this event but basically the debate as it exists today is uh employee negligence versus corporate negligence right that's pretty much what the conversation comes down to and sir go ahead
1: sorry but before we get to that um when that first case ended or the 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 big case ended with the 470 million dollar settlement it was basically immediately after that um that a, a different chairperson of a competing company actually filed a petition to protest against it. Um, and that case actually reopened the whole thing in the Supreme Court as a criminal case. Really? So now it's, it's you know, breaching that, you know, the the, the criminal side of the law. So before it was yeah. not, and now it's a much um, bigger deal. There are different rules and regulations uh, and it's being tried separately. So you can just reopen the whole thing.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. So... Going back to um, uh, the again, I'll call it a debate. I think I've certainly made up my mind, um, but there there is a debate and argument between uh, is this just flat out corporate negligence or are the employees to blame? And this was, I think, an argument that UCC made throughout uh, any sort of public, you know, questioning on the topic or arguments made in the courtroom was sort of that. This company is in, you know, this factory is in India. It's basically an Indian company. Indian citizens work there and they run the factory. So how could we all the way over here be responsible for what they are doing, you know, while they're clocked in on their shift is, is I think essentially how the argument went among, I'm sure, a lot of other nuance. But, you know, really it relates to is it lacks safety standards uh, in terms of what the, the corporation handed down? Uh, or is it a poorly run plant? Or I think worker sabotage was even thrown around at some point, too, which, again, made me scratch my head.
1: Yeah, I, I had read that um, one of the experts on this refuted the... Sab- I think it was like a USSR spy was supposedly sabotaging the whole thing. That was uh, uh, factually refuted, which is convenient because I yeah. kind of you know looked the other way at that one also. But at the end of the day, with all these civil and criminal cases uh, it, in both the U.S. and in India against UCC, um, specifically against Warren Anderson, but the way it all shook out is that there were eight Indian nationals, employees of the company, um, that were convicted of criminal negligence. Um, oh, really? So,
0: Oh, the, and those are some of the supervisors you were mentioning exactly, who said, yes. well, we'll deal with this when the next shift comes right. in. Okay. Uh,
1: but th- these... You know, um, the, the, these cases had gone on for 20, 30 years. Yeah. Um, th- th- this is still, you know, n- we're not talking about ancient history here. The event in 1984, certainly far enough in history, but these cases are still happening. And some yeah. of them are actually still open and still actively being tried. Um, I think our court systems are, that's eh, a topic for another, yeah. another day, but let's just say slow
0: slow is a is a fair summary i think and and yeah i I think unfortunately there was there was probably a combination of as you said very poor decisions made by people on site at the time who maybe you could argue should have been in a position to make the right decision uh, given you know their experience presumably Um, There's absolutely evidence of the corporate negligence from the standpoint of underinvestment in the plant infrastructure and just degradation of the plant over time. They had inadequate equipment to manage the chemicals that they were handling, um, inadequate regulation. We said employee training, which is ultimately the responsibility of the, the company, and they just ignored the findings of safety audits. So right away, that's a recipe for disaster beyond the fact that uh, some employees in in the heat of uh, a problem situation may have made the wrong decision. So, for me, the corporate side far outweighs uh, because to me that that's the foundation of why some of those employees in positions of power would have made the wrong choice. Is ultimately that to me that's about a culture of safety and things like that, and, and it just did not exist at that
1: factory. I agree with you. I understand how. Um, there can certainly be trials, like you know, legal trials yeah. about this. Um, but I mean, to not to put like too fine a point on it. But if we were sitting next to a literal volcano and it was exploding, like it was actively erupting, and I pointed it out to you, and your response was, "Hang on, let's sit down, have tea for an hour." No, you're and right. We'll deal with it. You're right. I'm sorry, but that is simply not the right way to handle that situation
0: yeah no that's that's true i think you could argue that the situation would have been less likely to even present itself had the company handled their business you know more above board uh but yeah decisions made by individuals were extremely relevant you know in that moment in in those hours that the event was transpiring so i i definitely agree with that
1: Yeah, without a doubt um so Ultimately, I thought this was a, a, a fantastically interesting and, and very influential piece of history, um, albeit horribly tragic, horribly sad, but I think it's worth uh, knowing one or two things about.
0: I, uh, I totally agree. It's a very interesting topic. Thanks for, thanks for suggesting it. And uh, to our listeners, hope you enjoyed the conversation and, and hope that you learned something new. Uh, and keep an eye out for the next episode. Thanks for listening.